Assalamu alaikum. I'm Latasha Russo, Executive Director of Sapelo Square, and welcome to On the Square, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square in collaboration with the Maidan, where every month, Sapelo Squad get on the square and into some real talk about race and Islam in the Americas. Family, we all have one, good, bad, or indifferent. But have you ever wondered where ingrained family behaviors, traditions, and healthy or unhealthy relationships originated in your family? Have you wanted to know or discover the secrets and accomplishments that lie within your family histories? Like why Uncle Junebug and Uncle Tony always get into an argument after a game of spades at the cookout? Why you only see Aunt Mary at the family reunions and she makes it a point to give your grandmother the side eye whenever she can? Or how about learning that back in the day, your great, great, great grandfather was the only Black business owner in the town where he grew up? Well, today I'm speaking with Tiffany Green Abdullah, author of The Bean Pie, a remembering of our family's faith, fortitude, and forgiveness. And she did just that. Tiffany Green Abdullah is a visionary leader and speaker in learning innovations, community development, and life coaching. Hailing from Chicago, she was a first-generation college student and has obtained multiple degrees, including a bachelor's in economics and a master's of education in education and technology, both from Vanderbilt University. Compelled to write this book to better understand her family's history and share her own story, Tiffany hopes the bean pie will create a legacy of storytelling in her family and yours and regain their legacy related to the bean pie, which she bakes and sells alongside her book. When she isn't writing, Tiffany is the chief executive officer at her consulting firm, Tiffany Green Consultants, as well as giving back to the community through committee and board involvement. She lives in Atlanta with her son. Tiffany dreams of turning her writings into movies and television shows. So welcome, Tiffany. I am a big fan of your book, so I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. You know, I got the book. I bought the book sometime last year, and it took me a while to read it. But when I did read it, um, I read it, and then... I came back to you and I was like, are you are you saying that your Aunt Daisy is the one who created the original bean pie? And you were like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So in the book, you relate that your Aunt Daisy is the one who created the recipe, the original recipe for the bean mm-hmm. pie, and that this was passed down through oral family history. Now, in the book, it's in more detail, but if you would just tell us a little bit about what that family history entails. My great-great-aunt Daisy, um, she's from um, Alabama, Opelika, Alabama. Um, so she moved to Detroit um, in her early early 20s um, by the time she finally got up there. And she was already cooking. So we know like cooking was a big part of her lineage, of her upbringing um, through the family. And she was introduced to the Nation of Islam very shortly after she got to Detroit. Um, So I know there was an interaction between her and the Nation of Islam because it was in that use of the Navy beans that she was already familiar with, but it was that requirements from the nation to sort of change how she was cooking that I know led her to the bean pie. 
into like crafting a bean pie and using the sort of construct of the sweet potato pie, which a lot of people, you know, say is similar to. So taking that and then transitioning that into, into the bean pie. Through oral tradition, I understood that she was always part of the sort of inner circle of the Nation of Islam um, due to her um, moving from Detroit to Chicago. At the same time, Elijah Muhammad moved his entire family um, to Chicago. She was part of that, you know, next migration, I guess, from Detroit to Chicago with the nation. Because people always think the nation started in Chicago and not really understanding mm-hmm. that it started in Detroit. Um, so that's how. And then my mom comes in in terms of transitioning that recipe from sort of an inner circle family thing. Because my mom, so she's re- she remembers, you know, eating a bean pie as a little, little, little girl. So she was born in 1953. Um, and that the bean pie was something that was sort of served um, at dinner dinner parties. It was something that Aunt Daisy would always bring uh, with her when she would eat. Um, when she would go out to dinner or when she would make dinners because she would do like um, iftars uh, for the nation. And when she would attend, you know, dinners with at Elijah Muhammad's house, she would always bring bean pies. And then when my mom started working for a Shabazz restaurant was when, you know, she was asked to get the, asked on Daisy for the recipe. And she gave that recipe, my mother gave that recipe to the manager at Shabazz restaurant. And from that point on, we sort of see within a few years the commercialization of the bean pie coming out of Shabazz restaurant. And so, and I did our research on, you know, following the newspapers, like when was the first ad placed and all of that stuff. The bean pie is actually only a short part of the book. So let's kind of get into the overarching theme of the book, which is the women. Mm-hmm. Um, the women in the book include your Aunt Daisy, Daisy Kennan, your grandmother, Big Shirley, Shirley Green Boyd, your mother, Little Shirley, Shirley Green Wallace, and yourself. Um, was that your original intention or did it just start developing as you began to look at back at your history? Yeah, it really developed um, sort of organically. I mean, it was the original intent was to just write about the bean pie. Um, so as I began to have conversations with my mother, the sort of point of the book and the the scope of the book sort of increased, you know, through those conversations with my mom. And and mind you, this is really like February, March of 2020. So this is when, you know, the pandemic is kicking off. So it was just a lot of emotions, right? As we started seeing like what was happening out of that and people passing away. And, you know, so the book became very um, emotional, very palpable for me to like really create a family story and just beyond Aunt Daisy, but really getting into, you know, my grandmother, my mother due to, you know, things my mother was revealing about her relationship with her mother. I didn't really understand initially, I mean, it, I did one, once I got to the end, that this was really a developing relationship with my mother in the writing of the book and something that, you know, would really come into play later um, when I, you know, by the time I published a book, knowing just how important it was to have these conversations with my mother. I didn't know that at the beginning, but but being able to tell her story and tell my grandmother's story wound up being very cathartic and healing for my mother. So as you're writing this um, and as you're, you know, reading over things and just, you know, just going through all of the process that mm-hmm. it takes to gather information 
what is a quality or characteristic from each woman that you feel you have that you love about yourself? And did you know that before going on this journey? Um, there were things that I, I think I thought about my grandmother. There's things that I think I thought about my mother that really changed during the book. Um, and during the things that happened in the, like the life, lifing <laughs> as I was writing the book, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the context of a pandemic, in the context of my mother becoming ill and having to really become a sort of a caregiver and spend time, ha- spending more time with her during that process. And I, I learned a lot of things about my mother in terms of her career um, and really being an innovator. Um, I didn't really know that. You know, I just thought my mom was just like a lady who used a typewriter um, as she was coming up in her field, but she was really like a word processor. Like we we look at that now as like, you know, computers, we all have laptops and things, but that was her actual job title was a word processor. And so when she, as she sort of detailed out her career, I was like, wow, like she was really a trailblazer in terms of a, a woman working in a corporate environment using technology, um, you know, was she was really, you know, a trailblazer innovative. So I think I have that in common with her that I learned through writing. My my grandmother, I hadn't really thought about her like deeply in a long time. So I started writing this book and sometimes it was like, um, what's, it, what it, what's it called? Like astral projection. Like I had to really like meditate and put myself in her shoes, thinking about her as a teenage girl, thinking about her, you know, having grown up in the situation she grew up in, you know, losing her mother at a young age to really understand like who was the woman that I remember um, as a child who helped to raise me. You know, she was always really funny when she was like in a good mood. And so I think I have that in common with her just being kind of like kind of comedic um, in a sense and want to always keep the situation light. But when she wasn't in a good mood, she wasn't in a good mood. And you kind of, you know, and I, I don't want to give away the book, but you'll learn, you know, some of the issues um, if you, if the audience reads the book. But then on Daisy, I mean, she was just, she was a trailblazer. You know, she was a, a person who lived life, you know, by her own accord, by her own record. She was very observant and she would use those observations to to really benefit herself in terms of her business. And so I think some ways I have that. I'm similar in that way that I'm quiet, but I'm, trust me, I'm paying attention to everything. I mean, I'm absorbing it and trying to figure out how that's going to, how that's going to play, how it's going to benefit me in terms of like what I'm doing and who I'm around and all of those types of things. Something else that stood out for me was um, from the beginning during Aunt Daisy's upbringing. Um, I noticed a lot of do-for-self mentality or self-reliance within the family when they were in Alabama. So Aunt Daisy was able to learn how to grow and cook her own food, preserve it, sell it. Um, I also remember she learned how to sew. And she probably had other skills that weren't mentioned. But when she left Alabama, she moved to Detroit. She opened up a restaurant, made clothes. Um, So she was using those skills that she had learned in Alabama. Um, she eventually opened, you know, some properties. Um, so what I noticed is what, that those skills that she learned in Alabama 
um, didn't seem to get passed on to the next generation. So mm-hmm. towards the end of the book, you mentioned that you had bought your own home. And at that time, you were the only one who owned property. So my question is, we spend a lot of time, whether that's in like, you know, closed circles or in the public talking about knowing our history as African-American people in the United States. But how important is it for us to know our own family history so that those that type of knowledge and those skills don't get lost or or die? And really, how did you feel about that? Was that something that you thought about or you picked up on while you were writing the book or reading it afterwards? Um, in terms of like knowing knowing my own history um, was something that I always wanted. I always felt like I didn't know enough of my history. Um, and so, you know, part of this was just a search for like, who am I? Who's my my great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother? Um, a lot of these names like Carrie, I didn't know. I didn't know her. You know, I wasn't told about her. And um, it wasn't someone that even my mother knew. It was a lot of things that were forgotten as we went forward in history. Um, and like you even said, the skills, the skills didn't, um, were not passed down. You know, that's those skills of sewing, those skills of, you know, growing our own food. And, you know, I would attribute that to um, moving from um, a sort of uh, um rural lifestyle to an urban lifestyle where you didn't, you know, you didn't really have a lot of, you know, land to to make, to grow food and, and a lot of those things and the conveniences of modern life sort of took over. Um, but those are things that I'm very interested in, in terms of like growing food and, you know, having more properties and, and real estate and things like that. But learning my family history is is definitely something I'm very much fascinated with fascinated with the individual stories um, that exist within the family um, and wanting to know more because there was things that I discovered as I was sort of at the the point of almost publishing a book, going back even further um, in my family's history and really wanting to um, look at exploring those stories going even further in the past with, say, Grandma Carrie as a central character. And, you know, there's no like lost journal or something that I can start with. But, you know, so that would probably be more fiction than nonfiction. But um, but I still think we need to tell those, you know, tell those stories as best we can, because there may be her story may be kind of interesting if I can, you know, verify some of the things that I did find in terms of further going backwards and genealogical research of her upbringing and the family that she's from and that she herself might be biracial. One of the things, well, it's a lot of things I like about the book. (laughs) But (laughs) another thing that I like is that you touch on a lot of topics within the book itself. And as the story progressed from one generation to the next, you made sure you let the reader know certain things. Um, You may have explained specific terms or just let the reader know what was going on during those timeframes, what was happening Mm -hmm. in society. Mm -hmm. As you continue to read, you would begin to see patterns developing within each woman and how societal issues that were going on 
with whatever, you know, whatever period that, that they were in, how those issues affected the community and also changed and affected family dynamics. Um, so, for example, you acknowledged family members from one generation began to use drugs. And then in the next generation, they were not only using drugs, but they were selling drugs. And then later, you may see the effects of um, incarceration related to both of those things. So I don't think, or I don't know if many people would think about that as they're writing. So what I want to know, why was it important for you to include that type of context within the book? Mm -hmm. I think it was really just to create a whole, a holistic look at each person their makeup, their challenges, their successes, and just really trying to lay out the whole person, right? Because we're not the, you know, the worst of what we've done. We're not the best of, you know, what we've done. We're we're a mix of all of those things. And part of the process of writing a book was really trying to uncover the pain, right? And to turn that pain into power and look at like, you know, that's why I called it a remembering and part of being a remember, if you look at the word remember, it's a like a member, like a member could be your body. Like, how do I put myself back together? And part of it was me putting myself back together on one level. Part of me was putting the family, remembering the family and putting a family back together as a whole. So, you know, I didn't want to just create this, um, you know, sunshine and flower story, right? Because that's, mm-hmm. not, re- that's not real life. Real life is like some stuff happens, some stuff happens, some good stuff happens, some bad stuff happens. We have to make choices. We have to, you know, sometimes the choices we make are because of our environment. Sometimes the choices we make are things that we personally just go after. I didn't want to cherry pick. I mean, some mm-hmm. things I had to cherry pick, but I didn't really want to cherry pick. I really want to tell the whole story and lay it all out there. And, you know, it is what it is. Those scenes when I write about the use of drugs or drugs being around were things that were very much vivid in my memory and at points in my life caused a lot of shame internally, right? But also realizing that as I got older, I'm realizing everybody family on the block was dealing with the same situations. And I wasn't the only one who saw that stuff. Everybody saw what was going on. But I was dealing with it, you know, as a child and as a teenager. And, you know, so you have to look back and it's like, you know, as I'm looking back, I'm also trying to heal that shame that 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 little Tiff felt, you know, about seeing mm-hmm. things that happened between, you know, my grandmother and, um, you know, things that were the dynamics that was going on in a family um, to heal myself, but also to forgive. Everybody who was involved with that trauma that they were putting on themselves, the trauma that they were putting on the children in a family, unbeknownst to them, I don't know that they cared, that they were they aware, I don't know, but 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 literally wanting to kind of like go back in the past and for and forgive them, find that way of like how am I going to forgive? How do I forgive my grandmother? You know, for the things that she did to me. But the things, you know, how does my mother forgive her mother for the things she did to her? But then what was my grandmother going through that made her the way she was? You know, none of us are just, none of us come out 
the womb, like, oh, I'm going to hurt people. I'm going to be a drug addict. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be, you know, we, we all come, we all start with goodness, you know, and it's just circumstances and things that, that change that. But that doesn't mean that, that I wanted her remembered for the worst. I wanted her remembered for the family woman that she was, that she never abandoned her children, that she stayed and she did whatever she had to do, but she was always, she was always there, you know, and that's a choice. You know, she could have made other choices. Yeah. And I think that's a good point that you make in regards to being able to forgive someone, right? We see the things that they may have done Mm -hmm. or are doing to us and just take it as as face value and not knowing that there's a deeper kind of trauma that's going on that's Mm -hmm. allowed them to hurt us in that way. And um, that kind of brings me to my next question. You touch on a lot of topics in the book. So we're we're barely scratching the Mm -hmm. surface (laughs) Um, in, in what we're talking about now. But, you know, you you talk about, like we just mentioned, drugs. There's a lot of things, depression, grief. One of the things that I wanted to mention was the trauma. The trauma that, you know, a lot of your family, family members went through. I think we can all say that we've all been touched by it. We've experienced some form of trauma in our life, whether personally or someone else in the family. And one big thing that stood out for me was this thread I saw between you, your mother, and your grandmother, which was sexual trauma. Your grandmother is mentioned that she was in an inappropriate relationship with an older man while she was in high school. There was the reference to your mother being promiscuous when she was younger. And then you also shared when it got to your story that you were sexually active at a young age and would later be a survivor of sexual assault. And just for everyone listening, we've talked about this and, you know, there was there was nothing off the table for Tiffany in this conversation. You know, she wants to open up about things so that you know, it, it may help someone in the process. So I'm not a therapist, um, but while I was reading that and just kind of sharing each woman's experience with this trauma, it seemed that, you know, it wasn't a coincidence that all of you experienced some type of trauma in that form. So having had time to reflect on your family in the book since it was written, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that specific topic of connection? Or, or do you see it as a connection? I do. And I mean, I think you can you can look at it from a really macro level, right, of like Black women. Like if I just look at it from that level, you know, there is a historical, you know, data on sexual assault on Black women, assault on Black women in general, um, from a, you know, a very high level of women, you know, Black women in particular, you know, throughout, you know, being in the enslavement period, et cetera, always having to deal with some sort of sexual trauma towards, you know, on their person um, and having to, you know, figure out ways to protect themselves from sexual assault. Um, so I can, I look at it, you know, in terms of our connection through the generations, just, you know, 
just one level on that level, right? Then as I look at it from a family perspective, I look at it as the lack of male protection, the lack of fathers in all three of our situations. My grandmother, because her father, she was basically being raised by her aunt and her grandmother, um, or really her aunt, because her grandmother died when she was eight. My mother being raised by her mother, her bio father, stepfather, you know, really being out the picture when she was like a really little girl. So again, she she's being raised by women, um, moving about the city of Chicago, you know, as a teenage girl. My situation also being raised by a single mother, solo parent, my father not being around, you know, after I was like a little girl. So I look at that, you know, that being an epidemic in our communities of single parents, single, um, a lot of single mothers raising single children. Not to say that sexual assault doesn't happen to boys, because it does. It definitely happens to boys also. But yeah, that's the connecting thread. We were all single, you know, all single parents, all in a single family situation. So not having that protection of fathers who, you know, I always looked at it like if my father had been around, I wouldn't have been seeking that protection from men, seeking that favor, seeking that understanding, you know, from men and being more in in that, you know, showing itself as being sexually active at a young age Um, and being sexually assaulted again was, you know, and it's just, in our families, we don't talk about sexual interactions and how one thing leads to another. We don't, you know, we just tell girls, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't do it, you know, whatever. But we don't really teach the physiology of connection. Like what happens when you go from holding a boy's hand to kissing a boy a little bit to a deeper kiss like we don't teach like what that does to the to their bodies and then what that does in terms of connection of like what happens when you start having sex with people and you know you having sex with everybody they had sex with you know depending on like what you're doing um so we don't we don't have enough real conversations with our young people um girls and boys in in our families so you know i think we 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 wound up leaving our young people because I don't want to just say it's girls all the time, but we just don't leave our young people really educated enough and we leave them um, sort of, you know, just open to all kinds of situationships <laughs> that happen because they don't know like, oh, if I invite this boy over, like they only thinking of it on a little light level, but they don't know the worst that could happen. You know, they're just they're They don't think that far ahead to, you know, the the bad outcomes, you know, rape could be one of them. Being pregnant could be one of them. You know, all kinds of situations could be one of them. They could let somebody else in your house. Like you just don't know what could happen to you. So, you know, that's kind of how I look at it. It took me a long time to to come to this point where I could even talk about it. And I had a, a conversation with some sisters today about young people in our community and they're like getting together and like not necessarily sex, but like, you know, boys and girls talking and all of that. And I was really like, I was like, I got to do this podcast, but I would have would love to have had further that conversation with them because I think there's some real talk that needs to happen with our young people before they venture into things that 
they have no idea <laughs> that road that they're walking down. So, um, so yeah, and I mean, that's the, that's the sort of my, micro macro way I look at the connection between myself, my mother and my, my grandmother and all of us, you know, being survivors in a sense. I can definitely relate to that on so many levels, mm-hmm. <laughs> so many levels. Um, and when I was reading the book, it hit me. It hit me in a way that lets me know that, you know, what you're saying, I think, is has has definitely has truth to it, mm-hmm. that we don't have those real conversations at an early age and that we, we don't prepare um, our young people enough uh, for those situations. So mm-hmm. I thank you for opening up about that, not just here, but also in the book mm-hmm. as well, because I think it it at least opens the door right? Mm -hmm. For people to think about it um, and what the effects, you know, that can have on, on people when you don't, when you don't talk about those hard conversations. I know that takes a lot of vulnerability to do that, to talk about it, to write about it, to think about it, you know, to, to go to therapy for Mm -hmm. it, to try to heal from that. So I want to kind of touch on that vulnerability this book ends with your story and you actually share entries from your personal journal that you've kept over the years. And had you not even stated that in the book, I, I wouldn't have known. I, I definitely wouldn't have known. I would have thought it was just a piece of the, the book that you had related in that way. So as, as an author, how is important is it to be vulnerable? And were there any moments of vulnerability when speaking with your family while writing the book? And from your experience while writing the book, how important is vulnerability for healing? For me, it's extremely important to be vulnerable in in writing, period, because I think that's how you connect with your reader, you know, because you don't know who's going to pick up your book, who's going to relate to it. And, you know, early when I, I had beta readers who were reading the early parts of the book, and um, and it was some of their comments that made me open up even more because they connected, you know, with the family stories. And they said, it was like, eh, that's my family. Like I was dealing with this and they might have been from Ohio. They were from, you know, wherever they were from. But and they were different races, you know, come from different cultural backgrounds. But they all related to the family story, even though it's about an African-American family. They still, you know, connected with it. So that that. That let me know I was I was going in an okay direction. Um, you asked about my family. That's a that's a challenging conversation, which is still um, ongoing. You know, um, where I've still had I've just recently I had to have a very kind of tough conversation that I really couldn't have had two years ago with um, you know family that took issue with my storytelling. And I really had to um, sort of level set with them, like, you know, this is my story. Um, You know, it's my mother's story. And you shouldn't really take it so personally as though, because I'd include everything that you wanted me to include. But, you know, this is about really honoring my mother, my grandmother, and my great-great-aunt. You know, it's 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 taken me a while to be more confident in my position about being an author and my own liberties that I get to take that, you know, it may not 
be approved. Like I didn't, I didn't need everybody's approval. Like I'm need you sign this waiver and be like, it's okay for me to, you know, publish this book. Um, <laughs> I think that that's what they, I should have done, you know, but I'm like, you could tell your own story, you know, like that's, that was my point. And that you don't have to be some rich, famous person, you know, the everyday life and struggle of most of us as Black women is a motion picture movie, right? Mm-hmm. For real. To get from A to B, it's like, whoa, she had to do all that. Like, sure did. It took a whole lot. Right. Um, finagling or figuring out and like, how I'm going to get to work, how I'm going to take care of these kids. Like, all of that is a story, you know? It's like, there's no person more creative and resourceful than a single Black mother, period. Mm-hmm. Period dot, as my best friend would say. <laughs> period, period dot. You know, but but the the family, you know, you talk about vulnerability, it's been very challenging with my own family in this book. Because I think sometimes people are not ready to confront everything, you know, the trauma. But I think if they actually read the book, they actually read the book, they would see the the whole picture and they would understand. They would even understand me better, you know, because I'm just at a place where I'm I'm 48. And I'm at a place now where, you know, I'm just kind of like, you know, eh, you can give me, you cannot, you can leave it, whatever, you know, and I'm choosing at this point in my life to create family. You know, my friends are my family. I get, I'm choosing more who I want to be around, who I want to um, create community with. Um, whereas in the past, I was more like, you know, this is my family and, you know, I got to be and I got to deal. And like, no, I don't. I really know. And I'm not. So, you know, I'm just at a different place now and I love them and I respect them and I uplift them. That's why I have all the pictures in the book, because even though I couldn't in words tell everybody's story, I felt very strongly that the pictures told a story too. And it told a deeper story of like our family. And, you know, even though we didn't have a lot of money, I felt like the the richness of our family showed in those photographs of all of us together at graduations and, you know, all the, you know, it's like, that's what I, I think that's my treasure. You know, my house is burning down. What am I going to get? My pictures. But I mean, I, now I feel like those pictures live on because now they're in this book that lots of people have. So I don't have to like, you know, kill myself trying to get these pictures out of a burning house because they're documented, you know, and those stories are documented um, to live on. Um, so, yeah, that vulnerability is something. And but that comes like you said, you talked about therapy. Um, you know, I, I've done, you know, gone through therapy for, you know, many years. I'm trying to think what year was that? Probably 2004, 2005. I started um, going to therapy after um, my first son uh, passed away. And so, you know, through the years, I've work with, you know, various therapists, um, coaches um, in different forms, you know. And so I believe I'm a believer in in therapy and just, you know, talking it out and um, being able to, you know, get yourself on a better note, you know, figure out yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely think that's necessary Um, on, on, you know, on traumas, on just moving forward, moving past things, and really understanding who you are mm-hmm. as a person, right? 
Um, and so I do think your pictures added to that that sense of family that you mentioned. Um, and if you're if you're at a place where you can see that within the book, you will. And some people just it, it just may take them longer to get there. Um, they may mm-hmm. never get there. But mm-hmm. I saw it when I looked in the book um, as far as uh, just the sense of family that was that was both throughout, um, whether it was in the storytelling or in the pictures. And really the pictures added another depth to me because it not only allowed me to see your family, but I saw my family in your family. You know, you had high school pictures in there. It was like younger pictures. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was one picture of your your grandmother um, where she just had this stance like, I know I, I, know I look good, right? Leaning on that wall. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and I have like, that was a that was a time like a, a period of time where like mm-hmm. you can just if I was to pull a picture from my uh, photo album, yeah. <laughs> you would you would see my my grandmother you know with that same or a similar stance. So I really appreciated that, mm-hmm. um, and I think other people will appreciate it also. Even down to like the the hairstyles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, I was in the South. I've been in the South my whole life. Um, but you were in Chicago, you know, during that time. Same hairstyles, you know, very mm-hmm. similar. So I think, you know, your book shows a lot of different things if you're just open to look at what, what it's telling you. Let's talk a little bit about Faith. Aunt Daisy, she was um, involved in the nation, the Nation of Islam. And that was a piece of the faith within the book um, in some sections. And in other sections, there wasn't, you know, that much talk about faith um, until we got to your story. And there was an instance where you mentioned a period of time when you were still in high school and you began to learn more about Islam. And you would go to the masjid, you would wear your hijab to school. So one day when you were at the masjid, one of the brothers seemed to take an interest in you and you ran away and never returned um, until later in your life. So while I was reading it, one of my questions was, I wanted to know what scared you. Was it was it just the brother that scared you or was there something deeper than that? And um, you mentioned you thought about Islam on and off afterwards. So mm-hmm. what was your spiritual journey like throughout your life? And how has it shaped you into who you are today? To start with the, the last question, I mean, my spiritual journey, Christian, pretty much my whole life. I mean, I was baptized. Me and my mother got baptized together. Um, I think I was seven or eight. Uh, Mount Pleasant Missionary Baptist Church. Um, which was right around the corner from my house in Chicago that my whole family went to. We all lived in a apartment building and you, you like walk down to the corner and you make a left to the next block. That was the church. So, you know, I always grew up like from there, you know, singing in choirs just because arts and performance was always a big part of my, my upbringing um, in the community. And so, yeah, in I think I was a sophomore. Sophomore in 
in high school when I started to um, sort of go start going to Moss Marion in Chicago, uh, which is right down the street in Stony Island from my house. And um, and I would always kind of sometimes I would go to Savior's Day. It's just, you know, because that was just something you did in Chicago. You're like, oh, Savior's Day coming up. You just go whether you were Muslim or not. This Farrakhan was just like a part of our community, you know, like our upbringing. You heard them on the radio, like Farrakhan was just around. Um, mm-hmm. So then I started getting more interested in just, and I would go to like the Saturday classes at uh, the mosque. Um, and I was, you know, I even wrote the letter, you know, to become a member of the Nation of Islam. I remember writing it like a thousand times. Um, not a thousand, that's an exaggeration, but you know, 10, 15 times. I literally like remember, I really wish I would have had still had copies of that. Um, but I do remember writing it many times. and. When the brother uh, approached me, I think why I ran, because I was always really shy, even though I was the oldest, even though I was like, you know, out in the city, you know, going to school, getting on the bus, like, you know, just a city girl. I was still, I hated when people looked at me. I hated when men would try to approach me. Um, It just really scared me, you know, honestly. Um, And so... Being a Muslim now, like I know, like he was so wrong for for coming up to me. You know what I'm saying? Like the way he did, like he never should have done that. Right. Um, and because I was doing that that journey, I was very much doing it solo. Like nobody had really like, hey, little sister, like what you doing? Like when they see me coming, like you know, I guess you know, I don't know, but they just never really, nobody really approached me. Even the sisters didn't really like. I mean, I would just come, I would sit down, I would listen. But nobody like, you know, reached out and like took me and was like, you know, what's your name? What you doing here? Like, why you, you know, how do you, <laughs> you know, like nobody ever, never, never really took me under their wing. So, so I felt very lonely in a journey. And then when the guy approached me, I was kind of like, ooh, you know, just wake me out. And so, you know, I just kind of slowly stopped going. Just start really, I kind of went the whole other, the, the other direction, honestly, after that. And was really more, you know, with boyfriends and, and just doing stuff, even though I was still getting straight A's in school, scholarship, student, honor student, doing all of that. But I still had this sort of other life, you know, when I was like out with my friends or with my boyfriends, you know, I was just doing stuff that, you know, I really should not have been doing. And that was very, you know, really dangerous, honestly. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And I'm very grateful that I got out of Chicago. I won't say unscathed because the sexual assault happened right before I left for college. But, you know, I got out with my life. And to me, that was like enough at that at that time period. But yeah, but my, my upbringing, you know, very much Christian gospel, you know, um, I went to Catholic grammar school, elementary school. So, you know, but it was like, you know, African-American Catholic school in the community. So we still had, you know, that, that flavor, even though it was Catholic, it was still, you know, it still had that, you know, that, you know, gospel music. We still did choir, even though we still like full out Catholic mass. Um, but we still did, you know, a lot of things that are considered very Southern. Mm-hmm. And so how has, I guess, your faith journey helped shape you into the Tiffany we see today? 
you know, my my faith journey actually starts, you know, really out of church. Um, and I talk about this in a book, having an out-of-body experience as a young person. I think I was seven um, when I, I fell and uh, I say, bust my head to the white meat show. Um, but I literally did. I, I uh, bust my head like right here. And I had an out-of-body experience. And it wasn't until years later that I really was like, wait a minute, that's weird. Why do I remember? Like my memory of that is being above my body and seeing like my family and everybody holding me and all of that. And so that um, experience really kind of sets the the mood for like my spiritual walk because I understood, you know, from that very young age that there was more to the world and what we see than more than just the physical. So it really kind of tapped me into that spiritual side of life. And that always kind of went forward in my life, even in my, my, my spiritual journey in terms of like faith and church and, you know, things like that in, in an organized fashion. As I went through things, you know, when I, um, when I lost my first, my first son, Oliver, he was stillborn. We took pictures after I birthed him. And so, you know, we had some time with the baby uh, right after I delivered him. And um, this is 2004. So we were just, you know, like that was like the beginning when people were like using digital, you know, back, you know, before then it was like, you know, you had your little pictures, you take them to Walgreens or whatever, you get them developed. But this is like the beginning of like digital photography. Like you're literally, whatever you're, photographing is like was there and in those pictures there was like this this like white orb around him around the baby in these pictures and so that was just another example of like there's more right that this baby mm-hmm. spirit is clearly seen in the pictures and that those that like those mo- that within that 30 45 minutes after he was birthed that his spirit was still there because um, you could lit. It was like a, it was like a haze, like where I, as I'm holding him between him and me and his father and him, like you could see it in the pictures. And so, just another example in my life of like, okay, God, you know, it's more, it's more, you know, it's more than what we can see. And so, the spirit world is real, you know, um, and you know, and you then moving into. Um, you know, questioning things even after that, you know, having all these questions of like, why did God, you know, take my baby? And, you know, and now I'm left without, you know, nothing. And, you know, and then dealing with depression after that and all of those things and and just being able to be quiet and, you know, work with therapists and and find positivity, even in the the dark places and all of that you know, leads me up to, you know, moving to Atlanta, searching and deciding to, you know, become Muslim. And it's been, you know, that was 2009. So it's been 15, uh, 15 years next month. So, you know, it's been an incredible life, a life of, you know, peace. And like, I still feel like I don't know anything. Like, I, you know, I know a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's like Islam is like, you know, I learned a lot even from my son who's 13 now. And I'm like, he's like, you know, you know, it's Arabic and all these things. He's like, oh, mom, it's easy. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not easy. Like, like I'm just excited for the few sores that I know, you know, and just trying to continually work at it, you know. But um, 
but it's a, you know, it's been a peace and a and an ease to being a Muslim that, you know, most people don't understand. You know, they think like, right. oh, it's complicated. Oh, you oppressed. And I'm like, you, you need to meet some of these Muslim women. You, you, you are, don't know what you're talking about. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not what people think, you know, and it's a lot, it's a lot easier. It's a lot more peaceful than, you know, most people know, but I mean, it's the number one growing religion in the world. So people are, they are, you know, interested. They are, you know, there's a lot of uh, reverts or converts, however you want to say it. But, um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a good, a good journey. It's something like when people, you know, stop practicing Islam, I'm like, what? Like, how do you, like, I, I can't even imagine, you know, not being Muslim. And I'm very happy at, you know, the community that I'm a part of. I mean, you can't get better than Atlanta for being a Black Muslim. Um, and the community that I'm raising my son within, you know, is a is a really beautiful, beautiful uh, life, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can um, relate to to a lot of the things that you've you've talked about, especially with like the the coming from a different religious background, and you know, people having these misconceptions about Muslims and mm-hmm. Islam, mm-hmm. and um, having that own journey for myself and, you know, my mom coming to me one day, uh, a few months, maybe a year after I embraced Islam and saying, you know, I really see a change in you, you know, that peace that you get, mm-hmm. you know, and she, she didn't understand it, you know, in the beginning when I embraced Islam, it was just a healing thing for me to see that she saw, you know, how my faith was helping me grow. Mm-hmm. We've talked about faith, you know, fortitude, and touched a little bit on the forgiveness. So where where does that come in? Where does the forgiveness come in as it relates to your book in your life? Mm-hmm. Forgiveness comes in similar to what, you know, I spoke of earlier with helping my mother find forgiveness towards, you know, her mother and me having some forgiveness for my mother too, because there's things that, things that she did in my my upbringing um, as a teenager, you know that I had to forgive her for, you know, and just the just the hardness of life and the, the things that she had to do to raise my brother and I, you know, and then just really understanding her pain differently, right? Putting it in perspective as an adult woman now, looking at my mother like as two adult women, and looking back and like, man, like you know, like she did a lot. You know, like how she do that on like twenty five thousand dollars a year, you know, even though that was a lot of she, the money she was making, you know, in the eighties and nineties was, you know, relatively, you know, better than many women in her stature, you know, only having like a high school diploma. But you know, it's just perspective, you know, and being able to to look back to remember and to be like, I gotta gotta forgive her. She gotta forgive, you know, her. Uh, making that forgiveness, pulling it forward, but then also like, you know, like, man, I hope my kids forgive, <laughs> forgive me for yelling, for screaming, for whatever, you know, and be able to to look at my story in perspective to um, the challenges that, that I was going through and the things that I had to overcome. Um, but also, you know, sort of foreshadowing um, <laughs> that we don't still need those things, that faith, you know, and forgiveness. You, you, you know, I have to really... Um, that faith, fortitude, and forgiveness, I really have to, you know, say, okay, a lot, like, 
I still need those things. I still got to use those as tenants going into the future because life kept going when I ended, when I said the end, <laughs> life kept lifing. And mm. um, and those are tenants that I, I really have had to to lean on and remember, you know, going forward to the now, to the today, to the tomorrow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and being able to laugh, you know, laughter could have been another, you know, adding, you know, that to the book, but just like life is real, you know, and I have to just keep pushing forward and knowing that this is not the end of the story that, you know, this book wasn't the end of my story. It's really, in some ways, the beginning of a of a new period of my life that you know, I'm the lab was just like really documenting. And even though things are different today, I really had to learn to look at this phase of the of life that I wrote about as really sacred because I had no idea what was coming. You know, but Allah did. Allah said, "I want you to tell your mother's story because her time is is about to end on this world." Mm-hmm. You know. Doing that work with her was very healing and cathartic for me as she became, she transitioned into an ancestor, you know, having documented her story and having cared for her through nursing homes and, you know, her illness in um, 2020, 2021, um, really 2021, you know, having that time with her and, you know, being able to just look back and be like, man, like, you know, I had no idea what was coming, you know, but again, Allah is the best of planners. And he said, write this book. And I wrote this book. And so I'm glad I was obedient and and had the fortitude to complete it and made sure that my mother saw it complete, you know, and it was nothing better, like, for me than to hear my mother say, you did a good job. Like, that's it. Like, I don't care if nobody bought a book. I mean, I do. I want you to all buy the book, buy the book, read the book, (laughs) you know, all of that. But I mean, in my heart of hearts, like what, what does it mean? Like that was the, that's the best part was when my mother said, you really did a good job, you know? And when she could open up and tell me her story and her pain and, and, you know, and we could really have a real heart to heart about what I wrote about her mother and I'm like, do you think anything's wrong in here? Should I change anything? Is anything, you know, that you're not comfortable with? And she was like, no, nah. because my mom was a voracious reader. Like, my mom could like, she she just had books everywhere, you know? So, and it wasn't just copies of stuff I read, like none of this stuff. She would read none of that stuff. That's all history. And she was like, a, you know, love story and romance and, you know, she read that kind of stuff. And, you know, she got into the Terry McMillans and, you know, as those kind of authors came about and Toni Morrison and things like that. But um, so, you know, I knew she was going to read it because she was a reader, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, you know, so that to me, that was like the best part. Not that you asked that question, but, you know, the best part for me was just my mom being proud and knowing that she, you know, she saw the cover because the cover was like a really big project, you know, that started with like very arts and crafty and then, you know, had to, you know, kind of work with the cover designers to get it because they was not getting it at first. Um, I was like, that is an apple pie. No, that's not (laughs) what I want. (laughs) Let me send you a picture of a bean pie. 
I want that on the cover. Like, you know, and just even the name of the book maintain, you know, keeping it the bean pie. It was a friend of mine who was like, no, you need to name it the bean pie, period. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Because I mean, I waffled, you know, like, should I name it the bean? I mean, it was like, you know, I had a lot of insecurities, you know, about telling the story. You know, it's like, are people going to question me? Are people going to be like, you don't know what you're talking about? Because, you know, I get those pioneer, you know, who come up to me when I'm bending like, where you from, sister? Where your auntie from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she from Detroit, huh? Okay, okay. You know, they they give me those questions and be like, let me see what she going to say. She knows what she's talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, so I was very much, you know, looked at, you know, this book from a scholarship point of view. Like, that's why I wanted to make sure it was very thorough and and how I was telling the story and, you know, setting the scenes, you know, with each person. And then I had some really incredible editors who just worked with me through the process of like, you know, how to order the book, you know, because I think originally like it was more me first and I went from like present to the past. And then, so then I flipped it from the past to the present, you know, so that all took, that, that took work going from a manuscript to a full out book. And then the, the journal part of my part was added towards the, towards the end because I sent my, my editor a little bit. I was like, you know, cause it was like kind of the end of my mother's story. And I was like, and I talked about myself as a little kid and her story, but then I'm like, how do I like, you know, continue the story? And then my editor was like, well, you know, write a little bit about yourself. I'm like, I show her a stack of journals. I was like, you see this? Like I got my whole life pretty much documented. Like I would have never been able to remember the type of details that's in there had I not been journaling, you know? So I'm a big believer in journals. Journaling. Yeah, that's why I thought that... Um had you not stated they were journals, I would have thought, because they are very detailed mm-hmm. as if you were, you know, writing it, you were coming up with it or thinking about it as you were writing the mm-hmm. book. So, uh, and I mean, I it was edited down, you know, I mean, because I didn't like, it wasn't like some days were like, you know, compressed, like the stories, you know, may cover multiple days of me writing in my real journal, but then I would like, you know, try to streamline it as much as I could. So then that, that's what sort of made the book go a little longer because they really wanted the book to be like 50,000 words. And then that, that pushed it into 75,000 words and, and it became a bigger, you know, a thicker book, which I think why so many people got to sit on their shelf because they're like, oh, that's a long book. Um but well, you see, know, I like thick books. The bigger it is, the more I want it. So <laughs> good. Yeah. And most people who've read it, have said they when they finally picked it up, they didn't put it down until they were done. And it was like overnight. You know, I get texts, you know, Facebook messages like, Tiffany, I finally read your book. Oh my God. Like, girl, I had no idea. I'm like, please write a, a review on Amazon. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell your friends to to pick up the book <laughs> and read it. But you know, I'm dead lie. Well it's good to know that you you experienced this with your mother before she passed, mm-hmm. um, that you all were able to share it and that she was able to 
heal on on some things as well, not just yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really beautiful thing that I like and that you share in the book also, that you you all were going through this, even though necessarily that wasn't how it began. But towards the end, like it was just, it was beautiful to to read that that part. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also have a video with her on your website, right? Yes. Yeah. On the beanpie.com. Yep. And so was that, that was done before the book? Yeah, that was like 2015 or 2016. So well before, mm-hmm. I mean, had thoughts of, you know, writing, but uh, that's really when I was getting into just making the bean pies and all of that. I may have been making them for a while, but like, you know, I was still, you know, early in my sort of Islamic walk, you know, and then that was just connection with some people in the community who were documentarians and me telling my story at one event and somebody else telling that person like, oh, did you know that Tiffany? And then, you know, knowing, you know, just getting to know people and like, you know, how the community is. It's like, you know, somebody's somebody's cousin, brother. It's all connected. Um, And so then they came to the house over that Thanksgiving break, I think 2015 or 2016 and, um, and did, did that recording. Now, you mentioned that you have a son. He's 13, right? hmm And so as you're completing this book or after you finish the book, is there something good or bad that made you think, okay, hey, that's because of my mom or my grandmother? Um, something that you didn't know uh, or didn't reveal itself before you started on the journey of writing your book? Something that that made you say, like in your in your relationship with your son, you know, I get this from my mom. I'm, you know, <laughs> this this generational thing, like you pass on. Like I'm doing this because my mom or my grandmother did it with me. I would say just you know my love for for cooking. I think is something that I get from my mother, but I see now is very generational because my grandmother really could, you know, she could throw down and. Um, so could my mother, you know, so it's like, I think I, I definitely get that love for cooking and really not even, I think it's sometimes not even about the cooking, but it's about what the cooking does and how it brings people together. So I, I love, you know, socializing and, and having people come over and, and, and cooking for people. I definitely think I get that. I think another, I think important component to all of this is, is how it was really my son he used to ask me questions all the time because when I first started the book, he was like nine. So he was nine and he would always say, mama, like, you know, what did you do as a kid? Like, you know, what kind of cartoons did you watch? And what was your favorite foods? And just all these questions, you know, that I imagine a nine-year-old, you know, because they talk a lot, you know, asking their, their, their parents or their mother. And in his asking me those questions, I was like, I don't even know those answers for my mother. And that time I was like 40, um, 44. Um, the year's going fast. Um, that's how I started asking my mother all these questions. Like it was the same questions that her grandson was asking me. And I started asking her, realizing like, I really don't know my mother. Um, and, you know, she was a little irritated when I first started asking her all these questions. Because at the same time I'm writing a book and I'm not necessarily, you know, I'm just really asking her only about Aunt Daisy originally. Like, tell me about Aunt Daisy. Things she had told me in the past, but now I really want you to tell me. Like, I want you to, like, I want you to, you know, knock the cobwebs off 
the back files and deep, 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 dark files in your brain and, you know, tell me everything again, because now I'm writing it down. Now I'm documenting, you know, I'm having this idea for this book. Um, and that's kind of led me to asking her questions about herself. And that's what kind of opened up the the conversations about my grandmother and their relationship and 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 really seeing and feeling the pain that my mother, you know, was still in her 60s, still harboring, you know, that was still really holding her back in a sense and, you know, helping her gain some understanding of that pain and how she could transform it into healing for herself. And, and you know, it was a little bit of tussling sometimes with my mother about that, but I was okay with that, you know. And then, then, and then my mom got sick. So I had to like go to Nashville a lot. And I spent a lot of time with her in a very vulnerable situation, you know, having to help her. And um, as she's like lost a lot of mobility, being in nursing homes and having to make decisions for her. And it, it really made us closer. It made also my brother and I uh, closer and having to, you know, support my mother in in that and a lot of decisions that had to be made for her at that time and also having to have some hard conversations with my mother, like, look, these people caring for you. I'm going to need you to not be mean <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, really work on your people skills because I know you, you know, you upset that you can't do this stuff for yourself now. But, you know, so it was like a lot of sort of reverse, you know, roles, right, of mother and child. The vulnerability that comes with with that from her perspective, but also the sensitivity that I had to gain from my perspective of like this your mother, and you're gonna be in this situation in whatever time period Allah has set where you're gonna decline at some point, and it may be this now thirteen year old picking you up, turning you you know whatever the situation you know that Allah sets out. Um, So having a level of sensitivity also for um, what it means to get older and health and what health means and having health issues, you know, uh, off and on the last few years and and really trying to, you know, deal with that myself. And and like, man, these years go because in, you know, 20 years from now, I'd be the same age my mother was, you know, and like that 20 years, it seems like a blip. Now, you know, 48, I'm like, oh, in 20 years, I'll be 68. And, you know, I'm adding up how old my son's going to be, you know. So it's like mm-hmm. you, you feel that mortality and it's in the time just seems so it goes so fast, you know. And I and I, and I feel and it seems like it goes faster and faster the older you get, you know. So. Mm-hmm. So so are there still questions that are lingering for you? Some that you were not able to answer um, while writing the book? Related to my mother, no. Um, I feel like um, I got some questions answered. Um, There's relationships that still are kind of like open doors, you know, related to like my biological grandfather's side of the family. I've had some conversations with my cousin. Um, his grandson, um, I've seen a picture of him that I didn't have when I published a book. You know, I mean, I just, I'll never know like what really happened between my grandmother and this older man, you know, but that was also a different time. 
um, a time period where, you know, men, you know, married young, really young girls. It was just, a, you know, it was a different time period, but yet and still, I mean, it's it's a complicated kind of story. So, you know, that there were secrets and there was all this stuff going on. So it's like trying to dismantle that. I don't really have questions about that. The questions I really do have without going further into the past. You know, when I started looking at, um, I got access to the um, uh, Latter-day Saints database, genealogical database. And so I was able to put in um, like my, my fourth grandmother's, you know, information and what I got back, I was like, what? what? Okay. Like she from this family of 13 kids. And then when I took that information and I put that back in ancestry, I started getting more information. I started getting pictures and letters of, you know, who is supposed to be her mother that clearly you know, I mean, literally got a like a letter that was on Ancestry that this woman who was my fifth grandmother wrote. And I'm like from and she's in Montgomery, Alabama. And I'm like, this is a white woman writing about her Negroes that work for her. And I'm mm. like, I'm like, huh? Like, but but you see like you see all the kids, you see her and like it's 13 kids. And then like her father has Esquire behind his name. And I'm like, what? So were no black lawyers, I don't think, in that time period. And it's a clear, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a picture of this woman. And I'm like, and I'm looking at my grandmother, I'm like, hmm, okay, maybe you, I mean, you know, like, what's going on? I'm like, what's going on here? Because you part of this whole family, obviously, there's your mother, there's your mother, your father. But you, you know, you, when I look at her, I'm like, okay, yeah, you kind of do look biracial. But I know my African ancestry. I know my, I did the 23andMe. I had my mother do ancestry. So I know we like 77% West African and we like 20 something percent European. So, you know, how do you, you know, negotiate all of that? And like these stories, I'm like, so, okay, so we got Obelika, Alabama. Now we in Montgomery, which is like just an hour, you know, hour two away from, from um, Obelika. And we're sort of like in this, you know, plantation, you know, they were all kind of sharecropping. But I mean, so it's like I got these stories, you know, I'm like, that's like, I'm really curious about Grandma Carrie. Like, was she like Mm -hmm. an outside kid inside? You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Was mama, fifth grandmother with somebody on the plantation. And she has this, this baby girl that, I don't know, like, how do you hide a, outside, inside kid. <laughs> and you don't woman. Usually that's right. me bring the outside kids in. And it just occurred to me, even as I was saying that, the father could be the father and it could have been a different mother. Right. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he's and she's listed as the children because those are all his children. But they may not have been the mother's child, but it could have been the father's child with somebody else on a plantation. Hmm. And that's probably like more plausible than the other way. Cause I don't think a man would have accepted his wife having a baby with a black man versus the wives always having to accept the outside children that their, their husbands had with enslaved women. Mm-hmm. Like that was so more. So is that something you're, you're looking like you're currently. I mean, it's a curiosity. Into- 
It's the curiosity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you said what questions do I have. That's definitely mm-hmm. a question is going further into the past, going back and really trying to find out more, more information. I keep blowing up Skip from uh, finding our finding our histories because he's doing like a news type of show with like regular people. And I'm like, look, I didn't already done a lot of work. Like, help me go back. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just like, you know, like mm-hmm. I need him to like really holler at me. I'll be in his DMs. <laughs> <laughs> like, I need you to like, really, really, I need your help. Like, I need you to help me do this. But but that's definitely a question I'm very curious about. I want to keep going back because um, I like I know, like I've done my African ancestry. So I know, you know, the tribes that um, my matrilineal DNA is from. So it's like, you know, there's a gap there. How can I fill that gap in? And, you know, and I really want to, you know, go to those places, Senegal, Guinea-Bissau and Sierra Leone. And I want to discover more about that African side. And that's that part that you like in the book when I talk about, um, it's kind of a little bit after that when I talk about Grandma Carrie talking about Mandinka and all of that, being able to connect connect the stories and and going back, going back into the past. You know, it's going to be crazy, right, to go, you know, go to those tribes and then see what's still like, what's the similarities, right? You know, and mm-hmm. I talk about that in the food portions when I talk about the, the you know, the types of food in Africa and what we eat here in America, the cornbread and the, the greens and the you know, like those are not just American things. Those are things that we brought from Africa. You know, so a lot of the, even the way we use beans is again, a very African culinary tradition. And learning that and understanding that through my research, it's like, oh, well, that's why she knew what to do with these beans because they were already cooking with beans. And she from Alabama, they were growing beans. And, you know, like that was... That's that's just something that, um, you know, is a, a really culinary tradition and African-American uh, background. And, and and unfortunately, we often allow so much of our culture has been co-opted and we haven't benefited the way I think we should benefit, have and we need to benefit from our culinary traditions. Not necessarily just from a monetary perspective, but just from a cultural understanding and cultural proliferation of our history and our cultures and how much of, you know, the way people eat nationally. You know, people, you know, everybody think they can make some greens. Everybody think they can make macaroni and cheese. Not to say those recipes are always the healthiest because, you know, macaroni and cheese was um, created by um, was it Martha Washington's cook. A lot of times how we eat have been the second the second tier has been the scraps and the things, but we made it beautiful. We made it flavorful and all of those things. But, you know, we're learning, you know, generationally like to how to make those things healthier. For me, I know personally trying to keep the essence of that soul food, but also how not to like give myself diabetes <laughs> from like, mm-hmm. you know, the pork, the salt, the the fat you know, unless it's good fat. Um, So those types of things. So being able to balance, balance those things. To me, this is not just a book, but um, as you stated before, it's a record. It's a living document for your family going forward um, that will, inshallah, forever be in your family history. So um, it has inspired me. I will tell you that now. Um, it was something that, you know, I, that I had been thinking about for a while, but just hadn't 
been motivated enough to do. I, mm-hmm. I suppose that's the best way to say it. Um, so what advice would you give to others who are also inspired by your book to, to do something similar, to create a living family history, to learn more about their history going forward? The first thing I would recommend is sit with your elders immediately, like immediately. Record them. You know, now it's easy. I mean, we got phones, we got devices, we got stuff that'll transcribe what you're saying, make captions and all that stuff to make it a lot easier. Have multiple conversations with all the elders that you can in your family and have them more than one time. Because um, many of the questions that I asked my mother in the beginning, it took a year and a half to get the answers to those questions. And the more and more I dug, the more and more literally like the synapses in her brain would release the information because some of it was really, really buried. And she would just sometimes call me like, oh my God, I remember. I remember. Like, ah. And it would just, you know, we could be talking about something else. And then she'd just go off into this story about something that I may have asked her months ago, you know, um, in in some way. So it's not like a one-off conversation. It's a, you know, just record them. Just, you know, not just just the, the elders, but the, you know, the aunties, the cousins, the whoever, like talk to everybody because everybody has little pieces of the story from their perspective. Um, and I tried to kind of write the chapters like that. Like, you know, I was a narrator, like a fly on the wall and, you know, until I was born and then I could sort of insert myself um, into the into the story. But but definitely first, you know, have those conversations with as many people as you can. Um, You don't write a book from beginning to end. Um, You start by writing stories. Right. The things like for you, I would say the things that like trouble you the most, the things that keep coming up in your memory, um, begin to, you know, just meditate, right? And write, begin to write those stories down. You know, the parts that you remember, the things that are hard for you to say out loud, just start to, to journal those out, you know, into little, like little short stories. And don't worry about the orders and the chronological stuff. Like, don't worry about that stuff. Just get the stories down because you'll be able to, you know, if you can work with an editor, that'd be great to, you know, begin somebody who who's outside of you who can help you string it together. Um, and then then you you fill you do you fill in, you know, stuff. Um, and that's kind of like what what I did because I had about three, like four different editors throughout the whole process because I kept like delaying the book delayed, pushed it back. My mother got sick, pushed it back, you know, so they, they worked with me um, and they were, they were fantastic. Um, so that's, you know, what I would say, you know, you, you, you never start like page one, my book, like that's not how books are written. It's not. Um, and in, in the, the course that I was in, the publishing company, it was New Degree Press. Now they got a new name. Um, but they always said that they wrote, they taught us to write our first book as though it was our second book. Um, and so, you know, just the formatting and how you do things and, and character development and all of that was just like, it was like a process. So that's, that's the advice I would give is like, don't delay it. Definitely don't delay having conversations with, with elders. 
Um, and even young people, I mean, because we don't know how much time we have, you know, just try to have start having conversations and, and getting a good list of questions that you want answered and just ask them over and over again and be kind of pesty about it. Like, that's OK, because it will, will especially for older people. And it really, I mean, for me, too, it takes a while for you to like sometimes you'll have a question, you'll dream about it. And then you'll be like, oh, oh I remember now, you know, what happened. And things you repress, especially stuff that are that's painful, you will repress the memories, you know, unless you like were journaling real time when those things were happening. And then I did have that because some of the stuff that I wrote, I was like some journals I hadn't read in 20 years, you know, that I went had to go back through page by page. They were just like in a box, you know, and I had to like crack them open. It's like, oof, you know. It was hard sometimes to write, you know, some of those. And so what about the the research part of, you know, finding out, you know, from people who have who have passed um, that you don't mm-hmm. even know about. Right. Right. The, the going through the Latter Day Saints. Like, you know, I'm not sure if anyone would even think of going through those records. Mm-hmm. Um. My experience with ancestry was up and down. You know, it was not a linear process by any means. Um, It was times that I would, you know, I may start on a Friday night and it could be Sunday morning and I'm still sitting at my computer trying to figure out, like, I'm like looking at all these records and I'm like, you got a hint. Then you got to kind of be like, this is the right person. Like, you know, but then in those conversations with elders, um, you know, I would have all these notes of like such and such grandfather was named blah, blah, blah. And they lived here. And, you know, you just have like all these like, it just feels like random names and birth dates. But if you can get names, approximate birth dates and places where they were and try to work through census records, which are like a wealth. Census records are like the business, like when people be like, when the census come around, I'd be like, make sure your family does the census. Like, that's so important. Um, and being able to put together where people were, birth dates. Um, and and it was never like linear. Some days I would find the families or the mothers and the fathers and other times I wouldn't. So you'd have like a hole and you have these people and you have a hole and you have these people and you just have to just keep going until like it was like putting a puzzle together and so you know at times my ancestry would like expire and I'd be like I'm so tired of ancestry and then I like I would subscribe again (sighs) let me go back in here because I would find out one little piece of information then I put it in and I'm like jackpot and then I find more stuff and then when I had my mother do the ancestry um, test that's when I found out about the bio, the the real, the bio biological family. And then I wound up having conversations with them. I got pictures and I was like, oh my goodness, like Ma, that's what you that's your that's your half sister for real, for real. You know, like you think you look like people, then you find these other people, you're like, oh, that's who I look like, you know? Um mm-hmm. so it's definitely a journey. Um Latter-day Saints was an interesting one. Somebody just told me that Latter-day Saints, you know, has like this deep database, but I could never get past their website. So I wind up contacting the Latter-day Saints and I'm like, which was like, I'm like, 
can I get access to your database? And so, you know, then I became like them calling me all the time and like, oh, can we get together? I'm like, no, nah, we got to do this virtual because it's like still during the pandemic. And then I found like, then they told me as soon as I got on the phone with them, they told me the little workaround to get access. So I was like, that's it. Like, I could have said no to that question um, or, you know, whatever. So I get in and then showing me like how to put stuff in. And it's, it's very like simplistic kind of database. But then once I got names out of it, then I put those back in Ancestry. And that was like, I started getting all of this like documents. And I'm like, these white people, you know, and letters and pictures. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like towards the end of like, this is the 20 December, like November, December, 2021. And I published in January, 2022. So I'm like, okay, this is a whole rabbit hole. I just had to like, cut it off because I was going like down a rabbit hole again. Mm-hmm. But it's a process. I would say don't give up. I mean, there is, Ancestry actually does have consulting services where you can hire a genealogist. And I was going to do that. And then I kept like getting little hints. And then I kept like having little successes. I did have a, a call with them, like an intro call, and they gave me some really good tips. And so I just like, I ain't had the money to pay them. So I was like, I'm going to have to just figure this out myself. And so they, you know, they helped me out a little bit. But I mean, I could have hired somebody for a couple thousand dollars who would have just done, probably gave, you know, figured out more stuff. You know, I always watch Skip Gates, you know, program, which I still watch every Sunday. And that would inspire me. Like every time I would give up on Ancestry, I'd be like, okay, let me start again. Let me try again. Let me put in a different, you know, just even changing the way names are spelled. Like the Scaife family was spelled three or four different ways. You know, learning that green was a lot of times with an E without an E, you know, and just how you, the the way you spell things could change the results that you would get. But it, it's a lot of sifting through a lot of information. And then I bought a lot of books. You know, that's just my own, you know, like, I don't know, skill of writing of being able to read something and like I would just have all these things highlighted and like how I will weave that into the overall story. But I was also inspired a lot by Isabella Wilkerson and her writing style. She wrote Cast. She wrote Wealth, uh, uh, Warmth of Other Sons, which is an incredible African-American migration story. My editors actually recommended her and recommended a bunch of other books that I was reading as I was writing. And the way that they use certain syntax and all of that stuff. Like that was stuff that my editors um, helped me with. Um, I listened to a lot of audio books and stuff like that because Warmth of Other Sons is a super thick, like 750 page, 14, 15 hour audio book. Um, but just so beautiful, you know. And now like, you know, cast the or the movie Origin is out now. Ava DuVernay directed, which is about Ava, um, Isabella Wilkerson's writing of cast, um, which I ran out and saw like even before it came out, like I saw it like two days before it hit, you know, came out in regular release um, because, you know, I just love her, her writing style. It's very like, takes a long time for her to write those books, but I just, you know, I love what her, her context and how she, you know, uses history and, and tells these really compelling stories. So, uh, so read while you're writing. That's, my tip. <laughs> Make mm-hmm. a lot of read, you know, read while you're writing because it can give you a lot of examples of like how to pull things together. So where can people purchase your book and support 
like any future offerings that you have and even um, you sell bee pies as well. So mm-hmm. where can people go to get that? The book is available um, through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target. You know, you can just, you know, buy the book there. Um, if you're in the Atlanta area, you know, hit me up on thebeanpie.com. Hit me up on Instagram, Miss Tiffany Green or the Bean Pie book. Because um, I always have books with me and I like to, you know, sell them personally to people because then I can sign them. If anybody wants bean pies, you can order them um, at thebeanpie.com. I, I make them to order. I don't really ship because I'm still making them from home I and mean, I don't vend as much because it's just a lot of <laughs> a lot of work. Um, but if, you know, people, I get orders from for bean pies all the time and, you know, it takes me a couple of days, you know, maybe two days at the most to to make them fresh and, you know, connect with the people and, and get them to them. So, yeah. And so thebeanpie.com, Miss Tiffany Green on Instagram, the Bean Pie book on Instagram is um, the best ways to, you know, get in touch with me. Tiffany, I really, really appreciate you um, being a guest today and really opening up about many of the themes and topics within the book so mm-hmm. that people could really hear it from you. And um, although there is a wealth of information in there related to each woman listed in the book, uh, it's it's always great to hear it from the author. So I want to thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Um, I'm glad to have this conversation and, you know, honored to be on Sapelo Square. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in to this episode of On the Square, Real Talk on Race and Islam in the Americas, a special podcast series brought to you by Sapelo Square and the Maiden. Thanks to our guest, Tiffany Green Abdullah. You can find information about what we discussed, including links and more by visiting sapelosquare.com forward slash on the square or themaydan.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music is provided by Fanatic on Beats. Salam alaikum. Salam.